Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Welcome, welcome. It feels like it's been six months since the State of the Union, which was just one short week ago. Uh, Never dull. There's always something going on. Last week, State of the Union, um, it was interesting. Not as eventful as I thought it would be, but it really does feel like it was six months ago. But that's every week. Every week feels like that in this administration because it's never a dull moment. Um, The episode last week already was in the can prior to the State of the Union, so I didn't really have a chance to talk about that. But I I, uh, wrote some initial hot take comments for CNN.com that were posted last week where I basically said, listen, the bottom line is this. Most people don't care about the State of the Union. I said this before. It's a distant memory already. The average American is like, yeah, State of the Union. They watch like for five minutes and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And on to the next. The bottom line is that Trump, that speech was all over the place. It was disjointed. The human interest stories, you know, like the people who are up in the balcony. This is a tradition for State of the Union speeches. Um, The president brings guests and they put them in the first lady's box and they tell these really emotional stories about about them and most of those people those stories are amazing and heart-wrenching and very powerful and that's usually the highlight of the state of the union because the rest of it is just the normal typical political speech um unless you're you know a political nerd like me or like those of us inside the beltway who watch and listen to every word and phrase and count how many times who applauds and who stands and who boos and hisses now it's just political theater really um, when I worked in Capitol Hill we used to have drinking games with, with certain words and certain things it's like a whole hill thing like different hill bars would have special state for state of the union it was fun I, I kind of missed that stuff but but overall it's pretty inconsequential and um, uh, you know and so was Trump's he tried to strike a tone of unity and and bipartisanship by throwing some nuggets out to Democrats. But then he turned around and he attacked them on things and put in stuff about the about immigration that was inaccurate and inflammatory. So, you know, it was basically, like I said in my CNN.com piece, it was just really more art of the con man than art of the deal. Nothing new. That's every day. So there's that. But I'm going to talk about a couple things for this episode. Um... Since I mentioned last week, it is February, it is Black History Month, and I'm really making it a point to focus on trailblazers and and people of import, African Americans who've done really extraordinary things, who are still alive and with us, that we can talk to. Um, Last week, I had April Ryan, who is an intrepid reporter uh, for the White House reporter, has been for 20 years, and I appreciate April coming on and talking about her experiences. And this week, I have a really special guest, someone who I admire, who I think is just an absolutely extraordinary human being. And um, his name is General Charles Bolden. He is a, a, he's an astronaut. He's a, he's a retired Marine pilot. And he was also the first black NASA administrator under President Obama. But he has an absolutely extraordinary story to tell. Amazing career in aerospace and um, with NASA and being one of the first blacks to ever uh, fly in space. And um, he's with me 
for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. He's my guest and we have a great conversation. Um, so stay tuned for that after I do my uh, my political chat prior to that. But I wanted to shift focus when I get to the guest part because it's just really interesting and fascinating considering you get you really don't get to talk to pioneers like um, like General Bolden that often who are still with us. So I think it's cool. You'll enjoy the conversation. He tells some great stories about uh, his experience at the Naval Academy and how he ended up becoming an astronaut and what it's like in space. It's pretty cool. So t- stay tuned for that for sure. Um, but back to the political uh, news of the week. Um, so yeah, so State of the Union, you know, whatever, that's over with. Moving on to the next crisis. And we're only a few days away um, from a potential another government shutdown. And of course, it's over border security still. And there's an impasse. Uh, you know, I, I've always believed that Trump was going to declare a national emergency to get out of this because this whole thing about this crisis at the border is manufactured. And I've said this repeatedly. Is there a broken immigration system? Do we have a problem with our immigration system and border security? Absolutely. There are legitimate problems. And I actually agree with the Trump administration on some of their tougher immigration policies, not putting kids in cages, not that part, but not a lot, trying to stop the catch and release and the lack of interior enforcement, things that were lax under the Obama administration that we really need to tighten up and we need to fix. But, you know, the having real quality public policy on this immigration issue has gone out the window because Trump has turned it into a, a xenophobic issue. It's, a, it's, it's pitting us against them. You know, it's, it, it, we're not having an honest discussion about what really works, what needs to be done to try to fix the immigration problem. He's turned it into a racial thing. And it's been it's become just so ugly and vitriolic and dehumanizing. And and we're not getting anywhere. We're not getting anywhere. Um, and here we are again now faced with a potential government shutdown. Um, you know, my, my podcast comes out on Tuesdays. So the shutdown is supposed well, not shutdown, but the the end of the agreed the agreement that that opened the government back up. The deadline was February 15th for Congress to pass something that Trump would sign that includes this $5 billion for the border wall thing. Well, that's quickly approaching and they're at an impasse again. But I want to be honest about this because, right, this is honestly speaking and that's what I do. When you listen to this podcast, you know that you're going to get a no bullshit account, opinion, facts, about what's going on. I try to put things in context so people understand where I'm coming from because I also speak from a certain position of authority where I've had experience in these areas. And a lot of times in, you know, quick cable news segments or on, you know, certain channels like Fox where you don't really get a balanced view on things, you don't really you can't really get to the meat and heart of things. It's a lot of people just kind of arguing back and forth and talking past each other. So I try to not to do, you know, I try to do that something different and bring facts and context to you guys so that you're better informed and then you can make whatever decision you like. But at least you know from me, it's coming from an honest place. 
Um, and I come from a point of view, obviously I'm a conservative. I am, but it, but I'm, I am a sane conservative, as I say, because conservatives today have freaking lost their minds. Most of them, not all of them. Um, but this border security issue, let me explain a couple of things. In 2006, the Secure Fence Act was passed in Congress. I worked on Capitol Hill at the time. I remember when this happened. And there was a move to fund 700 miles of border fencing along the southern border. Now, our border is 2,000 miles, but there are parts of the border that, that, are, that have the, the geographics of it, you know, the topography. There's like mountains and stuff. It, nobody's crossing there. So you don't really need to put anything there because it's a natural border. But there's also large parts of the border that there really wasn't much stopping people from coming across if they wanted to. I have actually been down to the border near El Paso, Texas. Um, I've mentioned this before also that when I worked in Congress, I was kind of like the Aaron Brockovich of a case of two Border Patrol agents, agents Ignacio Ramos and Jose Compion, who were unjustly prosecuted for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler who had brought over a million dollars worth of drugs and got into a scuffle with them. And they, he ended up getting shot as he ran away and he ran literally through a, like a marsh, but it was the Rio Grande, but it was a part of the Rio Grande that was more like a Creek right to the other side in Mexico where there was a van waiting for him and he disappeared. There was no fence there. If there had been, they probably would have caught him. But there wasn't. Now, this was back in 2005 when the incident happened with them. By now, I believe that area is fenced. Um, but it wasn't. I'm not sure. I haven't been back. But, I'm, but I know that there's parts of El Paso that have been fenced um, since 2009. So this incident happened in 2005. But anyway, but I was standing out there back in 2008 when their case was was being adjudicated and we were trying to get them out of federal prison. Um, it's a long story about what happened. I encourage you guys to Google Ramos and Compion border agents. Um, it's one of my proudest moments uh, professionally getting those guys commuted and out of prison. They were supposed to spend 11 and 12 years in prison. We got them out after two. It was George Bush's after a huge national effort for two years with members of Congress and um, senators and talk radio and a lot of people rallied behind um, the injustice of the, their prosecution, the the misuse of mandatory minimum sentencing. There was a lot involved. And actually that case is what sparked my interest in criminal justice reform because I learned a lot about how fucked up our criminal justice system is. And I thought to myself, oh my God, these guys, A, were innocent. B, they had the power of people in Congress and a national platform of advocates for them to, to rally behind them. Imagine the thousands of prisoners who don't have access to that, who are so terribly mistreated in an unfair system. And that really um, shaped my view of, of the need for criminal justice, fairness in the criminal justice system. So, but the Ramos and Compion case was something that um, I learned a lot about. As a result, I, I spent most of my seven years in Capitol Hill focusing on uh, border security, immigration reform, and things like that. So I know a lot about it. And I know, I know also a lot about how it's manipulated. So when I, when I approach the debate about this now, it's very frustrating to me 
because Trump has had a unique opportunity. Republicans, when they controlled everything, had a unique opportunity to actually fix the problems. And they blew it because Trump has poisoned the issue so much that even reasonable Democrats were unwilling to go along from a policy perspective and passing bills to fix stuff. And the irresponsibility of people I used to admire in talk radio and on like Fox News, which is just unrecognizable to me now, um, it's they've just really clouded this issue so badly. So I bring it back to, you know, Trump is in El Paso, or he was in El Paso. Um, I, I'm recording this now while he's there, so I'm not seeing the rally, but I already saw, you know, we can predict what he's going to say, right? And the fact that he's, he's using El Paso as an example is ridiculous because it's inaccurate. Yes, that incident happened with my guys, with Ramos and Compion back in 2005, um, but that that guy was actually driving a van that he was able to get through a normal port of entry. So it wasn't that he drove the van through the the border where it was unfenced. He went through a regular port of entry to get in. It was ridiculous. So, and it was in the Fabens sector of the border patrol. Um, But El Paso, I mean, even the Republican mayor of El Paso had to come out and correct Trump and tell him, stop using El Paso. You're misrepresenting what's going on. El Paso's never been one of the most dangerous cities in this country. Crime was, was going down for 20 years in El Paso before they even put up the fencing, where, you know, the added fencing. And El Paso's right across from Juarez. Now, Juarez is, is a dangerous place. It's fucked up. It is. Major cartel activity there. That's true. But El Paso has... Um, pretty much escaped the major crime. I mean, it ain't Chicago. So there's been bipartisan criticism coming from people on both sides of the aisle saying, hey, Trump and El Paso, is, is stop using us because this is not a good example. It's not. And that's the thing. He's intellectually dishonest about this. There are plenty of other, use San Diego. That's an example down there, San Isidro and, and that uh, border crossing with T- by Tijuana, they put up double layer fencing there and that cut down illegal crossings exponentially. Not saying that illegal activity didn't go down in El Paso too. Yes, but that wasn't the main factor. They had increased enforcement. Their law enforcement there is great. I mean, and, and there's something else, another aspect to this too. The idea that a, a wall which I just can't stand the way that even sounds. It's just obnoxious, right? It's just obnoxious. Can we talk about this like adults? Trump has has distilled this issue down into this like elementary school, you know, childlike, I'm going to build a wall. You know, it's just, I, I can't. Everything about it is just, just immature and obnoxious as hell. And it just, just diminishes the importance of this issue because we do need to have a secure border, period. We do. It's part of our sovereignty. We need to do that. It makes sense. But the way he's talked about this and the way that the right now has has framed this issue is just, oh God, it's so frustrating for those of us who understand the issue and know that there's no one panacea to solve this. It's multifaceted. There's the physical border security side of things. There's also interior enforcement issues. There's also the financial economic magnets of businesses that continue to hire illegals when they come here. That is a huge driver for why people come here. 
I know the media has been trying to portray this as an asylum issue and that people just want, you know, they're, they fear for their lives because their countries are so horrible in Central America. They need to just come here and seek refuge. I mean, sort of, yes, but the main reason people come here is they're economic migrants. That's why. It's for economics. It's to work here. They work and they send money back home or they stay. Because yes, America is a better place to live. I, you know, I don't blame them. I get it. But we need to put it in perspective. And our asylum laws have been totally abused, completely. And I know a lot of my friends that, that listen to this, you guys who are Democrats or that you are Obama fans, but the Obama administration really um, was lax in interior enforcement They really allowed the sanctuary cities in places like California to get away with not enforcing um, federal immigration law. And they've also allowed an abuse of the asylum system. That is why so many people are coming from Central America, because word got out in 2014 when all those unaccompanied minors came here, how to skirt the system. And we've had a problem ever since. And that no no wall is going to stop that. Because people are coming to legal ports of entry and turning themselves in. Or they come to areas where, let's say, it's not fenced and they're going across the, you know, the Rio Grande. You see pictures of that sometimes. But they're turning themselves in to Border Patrol agents. Because the word is out that if you turn yourself in, our system is so backed up. We have a million case backlog right now with immigration. A million cases. There aren't enough immigration judges. They just aren't right now to process everything that's going on. And what happened under the, well, the Bush administration did this too. And so did the Obamas. They had catch and release. They catch you. They go, oh, okay, you're applying for asylum or, you know, whatever. Well, here's a, you know, here's a court date. We'll see you in two years. And they expect you to come back to court and people don't. The statistics where they say that people do, those are ones that obtain, that retain immigration attorneys. A lot of people cannot afford that. So they just abscond. They disappear into the shadows or they have family members that allows them to live in kind of enclaves in different pockets of the country. And they live here for 10, 12, 20 years unaccosted illegally. They have kids. Their kids are are legal. If you have a child on American soil, they're automatically legal citizens and they qualify for welfare programs and they can go to school and all of that. The kids do by default. The parents and the family members do, too. So this is a, it's a vicious cycle. So it's more than just putting up a wall. And I can tell you that, that border patrol, they'll say, yes, we need physical barriers in some places, but what would really help them would be funding for more agents, for better equipment, better pay, because they're demoralized as hell and technology, reinforced ports of entry. You know, Trump talks about these opioid, uh, uh, you know, the opioid epidemic and how horrible it is. That's true. But you know where they come through? They're not coming through uh, areas of the border that don't have fencing. They're coming through freaking legal ports of entry. The largest fentanyl bust just happened at the Nogales port of entry. In a tractor trailer. You know who discovered it? An intrepid border patrol agent and his canine. They did a secondary inspection of a produce truck. And guess what? There was millions of dollars worth of fentanyl in there. That's what happens. Same thing with human trafficking. Do some come across? Yes, but that's not the majority of the problem. So the word is out now that if you come as a partial family unit, 
that the border patrol really isn't equipped and ICE really isn't equipped with enough facilities for these people. And with kids, it complicates things and, and we get the mess that we've had. I mean, it costs $133 a day to house um, people who come over here illegally and then ICE detains them, $133 a day. For family units, $319 a day. It's costing us a shit ton of money. And they're, you know, they're coming here. They know that eventually they're going to have to let them go and expect them to come back for a, a, a court hearing. And a lot of the times these, these asylum claims, they're thrown out because they're bogus. Asylum is like, you know, not because you're, there's some gang members in your town that are threatening you. Yes, that's horrible. That is not reason to, to skirt laws in the United States and claim asylum. You're a victim of domestic violence in your home country. That, I'm sorry, that's not an asylum, that's not asylum claim worthy. So, you know, ISIS overrunning your town and cutting people's heads off in like Syria, that's reason for asylum. A famine, that's asylum worthy. You understand? So, you know, not that I don't have compassion, but we need to figure out ways to process the folks like this. Let them stay in Mexico. No, this is a, it's, 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 it's not fair to the people who try to come here legally and it takes them 10, 20, 30 years to get legal citizenship. And then people have found ways to skirt the system and they come here and um, abuse the asylum system and then they're free to run around the United States. It's just not, it's not fair. And I understand why a lot of people would be upset by it. I just don't like the way that Trump is framing the issue. And here we are with it. We had an opportunity to, to try to solve the problem and we're not. During the State of the Union, he talked about um, putting more border, uh, National Guard on the border. Let me tell you, the National Guard on the border thing is just a red herring. They go down there. They do not have law enforcement powers. They cannot on domestic soil because of posse comitatus. So they go down there in a support capacity. They put up some concertina wire and they claim, well, you know, they're going to do logistics and things that free up border patrol, frees border patrol agents up to do border patrol agent things. True to a certain degree, except what border patrol agents are now being freed up to do, they're spending most of their time processing people coming over who are turning themselves in with families, with kids. They're not prepared for that. That's where most of their time is going now. So what do we do? A wall's not going to change that. So there's no immediacy for this. The idea that that Trump and Mick Mulvaney, his his acting chief of staff, are pushing this national emergency thing, saying that we're going to get a wall built with or without Congress, that is a constitutional issue that in the long run will be a huge mistake. I personally believe that Republicans have no appetite for another shutdown, in the Senate particularly. They also really don't have an appetite for a national emergency declaration either because they understand what the abuse of that national emergencies act represents, what a precedent that would set because where does it stop at that point? But I think that's Trump's only political way out is to finally, when the deadline hits this Friday, he's going to declare a national emergency of some sort. He's going to blame Democrats. And then this way he can placate his base and say, see, I'm doing something. And then Democrats can be the villains. And let me tell you, not one, not one piece of steel slat will be built because if a national emergency is declared, it will definitely be challenged in court and it'll be caught up in the court system for years. Trump will be long gone out of office before any of that gets settled.
but he can still use it as a foil. He can still blame Democrats. He can blame the judicial system. He still gets to point fingers and not take any responsibility and nothing gets done. And we're still back to square one. It's not fair to Americans. It's not fair to the people who are trying to come here. The exploitation, the human trafficking, the abuse, what goes on, those things still happen. It's not fair either way that we're not making a concerted effort to change things. But let me tell you something else. Democrats, I'm warning you guys. If you guys dilly-dally around on the border security issue, you are doing nothing but handing it over to Trump. Because if you take out the, the xenophobic side of it, some of this increased border security stuff makes sense. For example, Democrats are now adding a poison pill in the, in the negotiations, in my opinion, by claiming they don't want to increase the number of detention beds that ICE needs. Look, we've got to, if we're going to detain folks coming here illegally, we have to have beds to put them in. The, right now, we only have funding for 40,000 beds. There's currently 48,000 people held in ICE detention. Now, the administration wants funding for 52,000 beds. Democrats are saying, no, we don't want to fund that. We want to keep it at Obama levels, which is 35,000. That's less than what we have now. Dems, that's insanity, okay? It's going to be very hard for you to justify that. How are you justifying this? To say, oh, well, now we're going to prioritize who we detain, only the real bad criminals with felony detention? That is not, it makes you look weak on law enforcement. It does. It's a losing proposition, losing proposition. I'm warning you, the sanctuary city stuff, the, you know, we're not funding ICE. You got these crazies like, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm sorry. I know she's a darling for my progressive friends, but um, I can't stand her. I respect her hustle, but I vehemently disagree with most of what she says most of the time. Um, I don't share her worldview at all, including defunding ICE. That's just insane. Um, but you guys are going to lose. You're just going to hand this issue to Trump if you start putting in poison pills like not not funding beds for ICE. I mean, it's just common sense that that, that level of enforcement needs to happen. So that's where we are on the immigration stuff. You know, I'm passionate about it because, like I said, I worked on it for many years. I came to, I had no idea things were the way they were. Coming from New Jersey, you know, we don't have borders like that. Um, you know, we're not a border state. Um, we're a diverse state. So I, it, illegal immigration and the impacts of it really didn't affect me on a daily basis until I started working on for a Southern California congressman and dealing with that border region case in Texas. So I really hope that um, one of the good things of the Trump uh, presidency, maybe he should pardon my Ramos and Compion um, border agents, even though they were commuted, they still have the, the felony conviction. So the difference, a commutation means they erase the sentence. So if you're in prison, you can get out and your sentence is vacated. A pardon is like a full erasure of the conviction. So you you can start completely over. You no longer have a felony conviction and it's, it's wiped clean. And uh, those guys deserve a pardon. Them and my other friend, Gary Brugman, who was another border agent in Texas from the Del- uh, Eagle Pass sec- sector, I think it was. Um, and he got screwed over, sent to prison for 27 months for pushing down a non-compliant illegal alien with his foot when they were trying to apprehend a group. And they were all told to sit down and stop. And he had a rookie trainee 
who what did not have um, control of the situation. They were outnumbered, and so he, Gary Brugman, went over and pushes pushed an illegal alien down, down and said, "Hey, you know, sit down, stop." And um, that uh, individual complained, got the Mexican consulate involved, said that he was his civil rights were violated. Mind you, he did not kick him. He pushed him down with his foot, which is what they were taught in training, by the way. And uh, another manipulation of the system. They got the Mexican consulate involved. They claimed a violation of civil rights. And uh, next thing you know, 27 months in prison, life ruined. Not right. It's not right. So I can't get fully involved in advocating for pardons for them because of my uh, never Trump position. And I've been critical of Trump. I don't want to hurt their chances. So it, it frustrates me that I can't use my platform on CNN and, um, you know, it's more visible to, to advocate for them, especially the ones that, that are in El Paso now, Ramos and Compion. It would have been great for Trump to pardon them while he was there. But um, I can't be the public face unlike I was for them 10 years ago. Um, actually, the 10-year anniversary of me walking Ramos out of federal prison, a free man, is uh, coming up on February 18th. Wow, time flies. I'm still friends with their families, too. It's, um, it's a pretty intense moment. I'm very proud of that work. So speaking of being very proud, um, coming up in a minute, I have uh, General Charles Bolden, who is uh, one of the trailblazers in, in aerospace and NASA and as an as a African, African-American astronaut, marine pilot, and NASA administrator. So um, he's coming up in a few just other couple things real quick um, before I get to Mr. Bolden. What else we want? Oh, Virginia. Hello. The governor is still in office. I can't believe this. Last week, I thought for sure he was toast. This governor, Ralph Northam, the one with the black face, the Ku Klux Klan, we don't know yet, that was in the picture in his yearbook. First it was him. Now it wasn't him. And he said, I ain't going. He pulled a Jennifer Holiday. No, 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 no way. I'm not going. <laughs> okay. What? He's refusing to resign. The way he's handled this was enough to show me that he was incompetent and needed to resign besides how egregious the nature of everything else was with the black face and, or the Klansman and the whole thing. But then we thought for sure, Justin Fairfax, who, who's um, a black, the black Lieutenant governor, we thought for sure he was just going to slide on into the governorship, right? He was a rising star. Next thing you know, Last week, we find out a sexual assault complaint against him. And then it was a little spotty, a little iffy. People were like, well, we don't really have any corroboration. Some Democrats came out and said, well, we believe her. He's, he should resign. But it was very few. They were reluctant to come forward and condemn Justin Fairfax right away. And then a couple days later, sexual assault allegation number two. This time, it was a rape claim in college. I thought for sure that was it. Justin Fairfax was done. I tweeted it. I'm like, he's done. You know, fair due process or not. I was like, there's no way Dems can sit back after the way they got, they went after Trump and they went after Kavanaugh and the whole Me Too movement stuff. And you got to believe women. I'm like, how are they going to allow this? Well, it's been, it's been dicey. It's been a conundrum for sure for Democrats on what to do with this Justin Fairfax situation. Well, he's holding on to. And then you had the attorney general come out last week. These are all Democrats, by the way. He came out and said, well, I want to admit that I did dress in blackface for a frat party back in college in the 1980s, early 80s. 
because he was, they were trying to emulate a rap group. I think for him, it was Curtis Blow. I was like, okay, I think there's different degrees of, of violations here. I kind of feel like the attorney general, I'm like, all right, that's not a big deal. I mean, I don't want to say blackface isn't a big deal. Don't, don't take that wrongly, but it's not the same. It's not as egregious. I don't feel when you're like, Hey, I think Curtis Blow and the Curious Furious Five is cool. Like, let's dress up for them as Halloween. It's different than, I mean, maybe stupid, kind of like tasteless, but not the same as like the mocking blackface that we saw on Ralph Northam's page. I just feel that the intent, the context is different. It just, it matters to me, especially standing next to a fucking Ku Klux Klan member. I'm sorry. There's no excuse. None. Zero. Zip zero. None. And now Northam is talking about he's staying. He's going to use this as an opportunity for healing. And apparently 2019 is supposed to be the year of racial reconciliation in Virginia because it's the 400 year anniversary of, of slaves coming over from West Africa. I, I mean, dude, you have zero credibility on this. Oh my God. And something about he's going to like read roots now or some shit. Come on, get the hell out of here. It's so, oh God. So Virginia needs to get it together. What a shit show over there. I mean, Richmond has been in chaos I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't, but they have a shit show on their hands in Richmond for sure. Well, I was going to talk a little bit about the Jeff Bezos controversy, but I think it's already been discussed ad nauseum. I hope the pictures never come out. I don't want to see any of that, but the way he's handled this, I think is pretty interesting. And it certainly brings up the possibility of political retribution since David Pecker, who's the head of the National Enquirer, you know, AMI, who runs the National Enquirer, buddies with Trump in the middle of the catch and kill stories with the porn star and the playmate and protecting Trump for years and the Michael Cohen conviction and Pecker and and, and Pecker. I can't believe this guy's name is Pecker. It's just the headlines for the New York Post are just endless opportunities for jokes. But anyway, um, just, you know, their cooperation with the Michael Cohen case with the Southern District of New York. There's a lot going on here. And the fact that uh, the National Enquirer targeted Jeff Bezos, I'm sorry, I find it hard to believe. I don't have any proof, but I find it hard to believe that they just did it just because it was a good story. Donald Trump has targeted Jeff Bezos for scorn for years. He's jealous because Jeff Bezos is legitimately the richest man in the world. He's built a successful business, not on the backs of screwing people over out of paying them. I mean, maybe small businesses because of Amazon, what they've done, but not, but not like what Trump did. And, uh, you know, he hasn't been bankrupt five times. And, uh, I think Trump is just jealous. He doesn't like the fact that Bezos also owns the Washington post, but he doesn't have any influence on the day-to-day operations of the Washington post. He just owns it. And the Post has been killing Trump with scoops left and right. I mean, David Farenthold won the Pulitzer Prize for uncovering how shysty the Trump Foundation was. And the new state of New York is investigating that, too, because it was used as a you know personal slush fund, basically. I mean, the list goes on and on. But, you know, there is also a relationship with the Saudis and the National Enquirer, a financial relationship. The Saudis basically bought positive coverage for... Mohammed bin Salman, when he came here, MBS, and they did this you know, multi-page glossy feature, making him look like a rock star and what a great guy. So, you know, there's a lot of dirty shit going on with the National Enquirer. It's about time they were exposed. But this thing with Bezos, they fucked with the wrong one. 
because Bezos has endless resources. He's got one of the top security specialists in the country, in the world, uh, um, Gavin De Becker, working on this. And, you know, they think it was his mistress's brother, this uh, Sanchez's brother, who leaked the photos and stuff. And he's tied to Roger Stone. It's a whole thing. It's it's very interesting. Um, curious to see how that plays out. So keep a, keep a watch on that. Well, um, I think that's about it for this week. I think we're going to get to the guests now, to Charles Bolden, who um, I, I really think that you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. I really do. Um, like I said, not only is he a trailblazer and just such an inspirational figure, he's um, he's just a, a pleasure to talk to, great storyteller, wicked smart, and um, his experiences uh, growing up in the Jim Crow South. Um, he's from South Carolina. Um, he talks about his experiences and, and the influences of that and how he overcame it. And um, he's got a wonderful family. He, his son has followed in his footsteps and, and is a Marine. His daughter is a, a surgeon. She's a doctor over at Howard University Hospital. So just, just lovely all around. So I'm excited to bring Major General Charles Bolden to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Well, I am absolutely thrilled and honored to welcome this week's Honestly Speaking guest, and he truly is a trailblazer and history maker in the area of aero- aeronautics and space, and he is Major General Charles Bolden. And for those of you who don't know who he is, uh, I became familiar with him when I worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer because my boss was on the space committee and he was the NASA administrator at the time. And that gave me the opportunity to learn about what an amazing career General Bolden has had. Um, not only was he NASA administrator, but he's, he was also a decorated Marine pilot, a Naval Academy graduate, and an astronaut. He spent four missions in space. And he is my guest on this week's Honestly Speaking. Major... Thank, Major General Bolden, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it's Black History Month, and I felt it was really important to to highlight uh, African Americans who have done amazing things, who are still alive with us today. Not just the historical figures, but people who are alive among us, and we are able to see and appreciate their work. And I have to tell you that for many years, um, after I learned about your career, I would always use you as an example of someone who should be um, highlighted in the black community as as a role model and example, as opposed to athletes and you know and basketball players and rappers. I'm like, no man, <laughs> kids should asp- should aspire to be like a, a General Bolden, like an astronaut, you know. <laughs> so I'm pleased to have to, to have you here to talk a little bit about um, how you became an astronaut, uh, what it was like growing up for you in the segregated South, because I know that you are from Columbia, South Carolina, and you know talk a little bit about what you know what it was like in space and things like that so let's start off with um your experiences growing up in the segregated south in the 1940s 50s and 60s um how clearly do you remember that and what were some of the biggest challenges for you i actually remember it pretty well and um mainly because i'm old and uh and i have an opportunity and old is a relative term. But, of course I, it is. You're you know, seasoned and wise. <laughs> because I tell people all the time, the more things change, the more they remain the same. 
and today um, politically and you know and culturally is a sort of a throwback to my childhood so so I have had countless occasions to think back on what it was like then versus what it's like now for my grandkids and uh, and also to reflect um, as seriously as I can in trying to help them understand that as bad as things are now, we have seen them much, much worse in this country. Not to excuse anything that's going on now, sure. but to give them hope that we know how to deal with these things uh, and that at some point uh, good people begin to speak up such that evil loses out. So, um, so I, you know, I remember very vividly my childhood. And what were now? I I always say to people, um, you know, I'm from New Jersey, so I'm a Jersey girl. It was a very different experience for me growing up. I mean, I'm only 43, but my mom is 64, and she uh, she remembers, you know, some of some of the civil rights movement when she was a kid. But it was just a different experience when uh, up north compared to down south. And living in the D.C. area, particularly in the Commonwealth, I live in Virginia now, and have for many years. It still amazes me. Um, how horrific uh, segregation was and that it really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> you know, it really wasn't that long ago. Uh, it, it wasn't that long ago because a lot of it is today. No kidding. No and kidding. It's, it's, you know, when you ask about growing up, I, I, was, um, I was unbelievably, I had a great childhood because I grew up in the segregated South where everybody knew what the rules were and you knew, you knew where the territories were that you could go and couldn't go. Uh, there were there were very strong boundary lines there. Uh, when you went downtown, you know there were there were there were white only bathrooms. Uh, there were white only water fountains. Uh, I never rode the bus because you know my mom and dad said don't ride the bus. You're mm-hmm. not going to sit in the back of a bus, so don't do that. Uh, and but but because my mom and dad were teachers and they had the summers pretty much uh, free to do things, um, we had relatives in Washington D.C. and my bro- my father had two sisters and his father who lived in Harlem. So our summers were frequently spent, uh, you know, a few weeks in D.C. and then up for maybe a month or so, if not longer, on 135th Street in, uh, in Harlem. Right. And, and the thing that I remember vividly being different between the South and the North is I didn't know where the boundaries were when I went <laughs> to New York. Right. There were definitely boundaries. There, there were definitely places I should not go, but I didn't know. Um, you know, you didn't see any white and black things, but 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 it was understood by people who lived there all the time who who knew which ones were white and which ones were black. So that's kind of the way it is today. There's still black and white things. It's just we don't we don't have any lines of demarcation and we don't have any signs to tell people that. So uh, you know, our kids and grandkids every once in a while uh, come to some stark realization when. Somebody has the gall to tell them they can't do something or they can't go somewhere or mm-hmm. they're not wanted. And certainly they have, um, uh, you know, d- different recourse today than back then where you not you shouldn't be able to get away with that anymore. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, you don't have to worry about getting uh, fire hosed or, you know, dog sicked on you if you stand up for for what's right, which I would hope is at least not anymore. Um so when you uh, you were appointed to the Naval Academy, which I'm assuming back then, uh, unlike today, uh, 
there weren't that many African-Americans going to the Naval Academy. How did that come about for you? And what made you decide of all the things you could have decided to be when you grow up? What made you decide to go down the path of the military, specifically the Naval Academy? And I think you'll find a lot of things in my childhood are, were done for trivial reasons. Um, going to the Naval Academy happens to be one. I, I grew up uh, watching TV, much the same as kids do today. But back then, there were lots of shows about the military. And one of them that I loved was called Men of Annapolis. And it was about life at the Naval Academy. <laughs> and um, I, I fell in love with the Academy. I was in seventh grade. I can remember 12 years old. And I loved seeing all the midshipmen walk around the yard in their uniforms and, and when they dressed up for formal events, the high collars. And, and then uh, because I was a, a, a young man entering puberty, I was really impressed by the fact that all the beautiful girls came down <laughs> to the campus from all over the Northeast. That, that made a small role in my deciding uh-huh. back in grade that that's really where I wanted to go to school. And so I, I began doing my research on how one got an appointment to the Naval Academy and everything. And I started writing my congressmen and senators and the vice presidents of the United States from seventh grade on. Wow. So you were pretty determined. Um, you know, I, well, I was pretty determined because I also knew that the chances of my getting an appointment from South Carolina were slim. Right. I didn't know that they were slim to none. Uh, that wasn't made clear to me until my uh, junior year when I wrote to Strom Thurmond and Olin Johnston, my two state senators, and Albert Watson, my congressional representative, that there was no way they were even about to consider me for an appointment to the Naval Academy. And uh, that had led me to, to then falling back on uh, the hope that Vice President Lyndon Johnson would be the support source of my appointment as a vice presidential nominee. And then um, in the fall of my senior year in high school, November 22nd, 63, President Kennedy was assassinated on a Friday afternoon when Mm-hmm. Uh, my football team, as a matter of fact, my father was my high school football coach, and I was his backup quarterback. And we were on the bus going to Charleston, South Carolina, to play for the the state, the black state football championship. When my uncle, the team doctor, got on the bus, looking really glum, and told us that the president had been assassinated. Um, um, I was I was really uh, that was a really dark day, you know, losing the president. Sure. But also, um, in the back of my mind, recognizing the fact that my chances of going to the Naval Academy had probably just flown out the window because I had been talking with the vice president for a couple of years. And I was certain that I would at least get fair consideration through him. And he was about to become president, and I wasn't eligible for a presidential appointment. So um, I kind of thought my chances of going to the Naval Academy were going with the death of President Kennedy. Turned out it didn't work that way because I, I wrote a letter to to then President Johnson explaining our relationship, the fact that I had been writing him a couple of years and, and asking him for help. And I never heard from him, but <laughs> within weeks I got a visitor visit from a Navy recruiter at my home, and later he sent a retired federal judge around the country looking for young black and Hispanic uh, boys who were interested in going to the service academies in an effort to increase the number of minorities attending the service academies. So, so wow, what a story. William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois. What a, that is an amazing story. And that was at a time where, you know, the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement was at its height. 
Um, so President Johnson, I'm sure, looked at what was going on in the country and determined that, you know, there are plenty of talented and deserving young black men and well, not women yet, but uh, at the time that (laughs) (laughs) not yet (laughs) uh, that could go to the service academies and get that opportunity. And um, well, we're the, the, the country is all the better for it, that you were a benefactor of that. Um, and all, and all women love men in uniform. So it was a, it was a good, a good choice. Not a, not a bad career. <laughs> my, my, I grew up in a law enforcement family and my husband's a federal officer. So, you know, I, I, I was, well, I fell yeah, victim you, to it you too. You know very well. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually just, so how did you meet your wife? Oh, that's a, that's a short story. We grew up together. We oh. have, we have actually known each other and she gets embarrassed, but We've known each other since we were three. Our moms and dads, again, in the segregated South, my mom and dad uh, went to school with her mom and dad uh, in high school. My father and her father played football together. They all went away to different colleges but came back to teach in South Carolina. And uh, back then there was an organization, there still is, called Jack and Jill. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with it. You probably know Jack and Jill very well being from New Jersey. Yep. But it was a social organization through which, uh, you know, black mothers could could get their kids to do and see things that they could not ordinarily do because of the because of the Jim Crow laws. But mm-hmm. we could go to the planetarium and to the ballet and to other things, you know, certain days or certain nights because our parents, our, our mothers were deals uh, to get us in in a non-intrusive manner where we would, you know, nobody would see us and and we, we could enjoy some of the social graces uh, of the time. And Jackie and I were both members of Jack and Jill through our moms together. So we went to kindergarten together. And I tell people I fell in love with her in kindergarten. Oh, my gosh, and, how cute. Oh, yeah. And we went to different elementary schools, but, but we came back together in junior high. Um, we differ on when we actually started dating and becoming serious. Uh, we agree that probably during the during my time at the Naval Academy and her time at Spelman, uh, but I finally asked her to marry me uh, at the end of my, our junior year in college, and we were married three days after we graduated from the Naval Academy. After I graduated from the Naval Academy. Well, I I love that since we are in Valentine season. I love stories of love, um, and that's amazing. Not it's not too often in this day and age that you hear about um, not just high school sweethearts, but we're talking kindergarten sweethearts with you. And, kindergarten. and <laughs> that's a, I, I love that's it. Right. Only the, the three-year-old beach uh, love affair because as the story goes, and neither of us can verify this, but we used to go to a place called Atlantic Beach. That was Myrtle Beach was off limits for blacks, but. Mm-hmm. Right up the beach was uh, Atlantic Beach where we went, and supposedly our families were down for a, a, a weekend at the beach. And Jackie's one of three girls; I'm one of two boys, and she's the middle girl. And she was a little bullegged when we were growing up. <laughs> and as the story goes, my father looked out at the three girls in the surf and and turned to her father and said, "Hey, Pete, save the bullegged one for Charles." Oh and my gosh! So. so <laughs> Allegedly, we are an arranged marriage. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I'm sure uh, the, the, the Christian in you will say that it was ordained. It was or, already ordained. God had his plan. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. But since ne- none of the parents are still living, we have no way to verify that right. story. But I like it anyway. It's family lore. That's great. That's yep. a great story. Um, 
So uh, after you guys get married, you graduate from the Naval Academy, you go over to Vietnam, you fly over 100 combat missions while you're over there, you come back from Vietnam, and you become a Navy test pilot, and that leads you to NASA. At what point did you realize or decide that, you know what, I think I want to be an astronaut? Uh, you know, that was never in my plan. Um, interestingly, I knew what astronauts were from the, from the time NASA started, you know, NASA was formed actually in 58, but, but when they started recruiting astronauts, I knew what they were. I had watched the Mercury, Gemini and Apollo programs, Mm -hmm. uh, like everybody else. I was in flight school on the, in Meridian, Mississippi, the night, uh, that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And I was mesmerized by it, but had no desire to become an astronaut. And again, it was mainly because of the fact that I had grown up in the segregated South and there was nobody who looked like me and, and, uh, you know, no test pilots. And so I, in my mind, that was just, don't even think about it because it wasn't going to happen. And it was not until I had managed to become a test pilot through a number of different things that uh, I met the late Dr. Ron McNair, who had grown up about 40 miles from me in a little place called Lake City, South Carolina. He and I, both African-American, both from segregated schools. His mom was a teacher also. But Ron had always believed that he was going to be an astronaut. He wanted to be. Taught himself calculus and physics to go to A&T and then on to MIT to earn a PhD in laser physics and uh, applied for the astronaut program and was accepted in the first class. And uh, it's traditional for graduates of the test pilot school to come back for a reunion in the springtime. And so a number of them who were in Ron's class got in their sleek-looking white T-38 supersonic jets <laughs> and came from Houston to Patuxent River, Maryland. We were all really impressed watching them get out of their airplanes in their sleek looking black uh, blue flight suits and sure so ron being the only black in the group to get out uh, he and i kind of tagged up and we talked over the weekend and i was really mesmerized by what he was telling me his experiences were in 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 that first year of his candidacy and uh before he left he asked me if i was going to apply for the program i told him not on your life <laughs> and uh, he, looked at, he looked at me real strange and he asked me why not and i said they'd never pick me and uh, which would have embarrassed my mom and dad to no end because they had always told me I could do anything I wanted to do. But I, sure. I had put this artificial limitation on myself. And Ron looked at me, he said, you know, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. He <laughs> said, how do you know? Right. Uh, he just looked at me and he shook his head. He said, how do you know if you don't ask? And uh, so I was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And when he left and went back to Houston, I got pen and paper out and I put my application in for the program, got an opportunity to go to Houston and interview and I was selected in the second group of space shuttle astronauts. So, so I was embarrassed into applying and then subsequently <laughs> selected. So it was not a long-range plan of mine. Right. Well, embarrassed in a good way, and thinking and, and thinking that you know you were not necessarily accepting of the limitations of segregation back when you were younger, even trying to get into the the service academy. Um, and during your experiences at the Naval Academy, did you, did, did you ever feel that same kind of limitation while you were at the Naval Academy? Because I can imagine that there were times, especially in 19, you know, mid sixties that, um, despite being in, in the elite military academy, you know, in Annapolis, that you probably still experienced some of those things that led to you believing that there were still limitations on what you could achieve. 
You know, you I did, but one thing happened at the Naval Academy, and it happened very gradually. I, when I got there, there were seven blacks in my class of uh, in the 1,400 of us, and uh, we brought the total number of midshipmen, black midshipmen at the academy up to uh, 12. Wow. Of 4,000. We had three, three seniors, um, uh, no juniors, two sophomores, and, uh, and seven of us. And at the end of that first year, we were down to four. <laughs> and we stayed together through graduation and remained friends. And today, there are two, three, three of us are still living. My best man, Buddy Clark from Chicago, uh, we lost him uh, several years ago. But, but three of the four are still alive. But um, over time, although there was a lot of hatred and a lot of uh, uh, acts of discrimination within the brigade, they were all uh, done under cover. They, no one had the guts to do anything outright, even though Annapolis was still, you know, Maryland was, was still segregated right. then. It's below the Mason-Dixon so, line. People forget that. Yeah, and it was really crazy to go out in town because there were restaurants in which we could eat when we were in uniform. Um, you know, nobody asked any questions. You just went in like anybody else and ate. And yet on the outskirts of Annapolis, where the mids used to like to go outside the seven-mile limit where you, you couldn't drink inside that, we couldn't go because they were all, most of them were, uh, you know, really, you didn't want to be there anyway. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've, been to an, I've been to Annapolis. Annapolis itself, yeah. downtown, is beautiful, but the outskirts yeah. is a little country, yes. <laughs> I mean, I remember a place on Highway 50 on the way, you know, out toward the Bay Bridge, Yep, and it was uh, everybody ranted and raved about it, and we went in there, tried to get in there one time, and we were turned away. and And I took a look at it, and I said, you know, I don't want to be in here anyway. <laughs> you uh, did yourself a favor, <laughs> but, you know. But 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 over time, that slowly went away, and I became more and more comfortable at the Naval Academy. After wanting to be there since seventh grade, I hated it when I first got there. I, I did well. Um, but I did not like it. I, I just didn't like the environment. I didn't like many of some of the people, not many. But I, I, I gained incredible friendships, and I became very active in the in the um, you know midshipman activities. I was a brigade boxer. I was on the choir. Um, <laughs> I, I did everything that I was given an opportunity to do. And so my my fear of trying things kind of melted away. Although I still never thought about being an astronaut. There was right. still some things that I just didn't think. And, and I think the main reason was I had no desire to fly. Um, when I graduated from the Naval Academy, the two things I knew I was not going to do just before my, my senior year, I was not going in the Marine Corps because they were crazy. <laughs> and I was not going to fly airplanes because that was inherently dangerous. And then my senior year, when it came time to decide what you wanted to do, I looked back on my four years, and the one person who impressed me the most was way back in my freshman year. My first company also was a young Marine Corps major by the name of John Riley Love, who had been like my dad. He was unbelievably tough, but eminently fair in everything. And, uh, and I learned so much from him. And I decided, okay, um, I can do anything I want to do. I want to be like him. And I decided I was going to be a Marine. And I, I thought I was going to be an infantry officer. And I got to Quantico, Virginia for training to learn how to be an inf a rifle platoon commander and found out I did not like crawling around in the mud. <laughs> and, uh, and so the next best alternative for me, and my wife insisted on it because, like I said, we were married three days after graduation. Right. And Jackie did not like the prospect of me being a Marine anyway. 
And she kept saying, why don't we go to Pensacola? And uh, I said, because that's where airplanes are, and I don't want to fly. She said, well, we to go to Pensacola. And I finally gave up, and we went to Pensacola. And I fell in love with flying the first time I got in an airplane, and we lifted off. And, and I never looked back after that. And it, it was one thing after another. So my life is not a life that I would give as an example to any young person, because we always talk to them about planning and doing things. I zigged and zagged all the way through life. I'm, you know, I'm 72 years old now. And I have probably zigged and zagged for uh, 70 of those 72 years. You know what, though? That's real. A lot, most of the time, most of the time, life, life is not yeah. as you plan it. The zig and zags is a natural way. So I think your life is a great example of uh, yeah. being open to um, maybe doing things that you didn't expect or having different expectations, just being open to what God's plan may be for you yeah. and uh, no, be, being willing to just go for it. I agree 100%. I, you know, we have a saying in, in all the military services, but particularly in the Marine Corps, no plan survives crossing the line of departure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and that's sort of like life. You know, you, you make all these plans, and then all of a sudden life happens. Yeah, that's and, right. And, 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 and if, if, you, if you're successful, you learn how to deal with it, and you adjust. Uh, those who aren't successful, uh, you know, either take a hard stance and say, that's not what I had in mind, and, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to, just make it happen my way, and they have a difficult time. Yeah, that's right. And listen, I, I have much respect to all of our service branches and all of our men and women who serve, but there's something very different and special about Marines. And when I was a, a congressional staffer, I used to have the opportunity to go to Quantico once a year uh, for Marine Day. So we'd get to fly on helicopters and shoot big guns and, and uh, hang out with Marines all day and just... Uh, appreciate uh, what what you guys do. So I, I get it. Marines are cut from a, a from a different mold, <laughs> for sure. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your experience on your first flight. Um, I, as I mentioned, I when I was a congressional staffer, another one of the cool things I got a chance to do was attend two shuttle launches um, during your tenure as as NASA administrator. Actually, um, I went. To, the first one was Discovery which I know that you flew. Um, and the second one was Endeavor. It was actually the final voyage of, of Endeavor, which was a pretty special moment for me. And I have to tell you that for me as a civilian on the ground, it was one of the most exhilarating, breathtaking, emotional experiences to, to sit there and watch because we got to be in the VIP section. So we were as close as you could be without, you know, being either in NASA or on the shuttle um, and experiencing that, just the beauty of that human ingenuity and watching that. It brought me to tears both times. Um, what was it like for you the first time you went up? Uh, it was um, incredible. It was from a technical standpoint it was everything i had been trained for which i had been trained um so you know the the shuttle itself the way it performed um uh all that stuff was like i had been there before the mm. way it handled the way it flew um the way our our you know most of our activities on board went for the seven days that we were in space uh they were not at all unusual they were exactly the way we had trained with very few exceptions Emotionally, I wasn't anywhere close to being ready. Um, and I think it started, you know, uh, at liftoff, although the simulator kind of does a pretty good job of, of letting you know what the shuttle's going to feel like and what things are going to look like. 
the simulator does not vibrate anywhere close to the way the shuttle does at liftoff. I mean, it, it, feels, it feels like the vehicle's just going to come apart. It's just, just with the solid rocket boosters on, it's just yeah. shaking and you can hear metal clanging and stuff. And that part was kind of a surprise, but still, uh, and, and the fact that it made it really hard to read anything, and that's what you had spent 90 some odd percent of your training was in dealing with emergencies that would occur during this dynamic phase of flight. Mm-hmm. But back then in the simulator, you could read stuff. Uh, you you were shaking so much it was really hard to read gauges and dials and stuff. So that part was a little different. The big thing came though. We lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center and a little bit more than 10 minutes later, you know, we were on our way to orbit. We were going 17,500 miles an hour. We were flying over the British Isles and I looked out the front, raised my seat up and looked out the front window and uh, and I saw this big island coming up in uh, what I thought was a big island. And it suddenly occurred to me that I was looking at this body of water that was the Mediterranean Sea, and that big island was the continent of Africa. Huh. And, um, and I was just, I mean, I was stunned and mesmerized by its beauty, uh, and, but also just unbelievably disappointed because I'd spent a lot of time in preparation for my flight by studying the geography of Africa and memorizing where the countries were and everything because I wanted to be able to see countries like West Africa and, um, you know, Nigeria and and places where it was possible my ancestors had come from. Mm. And I looked down only to find that there were no borders, no boundaries. Um, Africa was just one big body of land uh, that was unbelievably beautiful from the Mediterranean coast all the way down through the Sahara Desert into the you know, the the equatorial region down to the tip of South Africa. And, and I realized that, man, you know, God didn't put any lines on this stuff. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, and I, I literally cried when I, I mean, tears rolled down my cheeks. I can imagine. And I, because I just, I just was not ready for the emotional experience of, of seeing that for the first time, you know, from that vantage point. And uh, I think that's a very real moment that a lot of people don't, realize they think you know astronauts are these big tough guys they watch movies you know and oh, you know, big... more. I, I just wasn't yeah well it, you, again it, you, you know you were a real <laughs> a real guy you know you're like this is beautiful and i'm not afraid to shed a tear over it <laughs> you know i think you've earned i think you earned it um now the first shuttle launch for you was in 1986 right and that was columbia yeah, we launched on Columbia on January 12th and landed on the 28th. And 10 days later, as I think you know, uh, I lost my, my, my role model, my friend, my inspiration, the guy without whom I would not have become an astronaut, Dr. Ron McNair, when we lost Challenger. Right. And um, I was, that was going to be my next question was um, that, that uh, tragedy happened such a short time after you returned to Earth. And that kind of was life-changing for you not only in losing someone so close and influential for you. Um, obviously, it was a yeah. national tragedy, one of those moments where everyone remembers where they were. I was in fifth grade, in my fifth grade class, watching it when it happened. Um, how did that change your trajectory in, with NASA and as, as an astronaut and in your, in, in, in your career, just even your whole outlook on everything? Because, uh, one of, you know, were you afraid moving forward? I mean, you did four missions, so were you, did every time you get into the shuttle, you thought this could be it? You know, were you afraid to die? 
Karen, no, I never, I never got there. I, um, you know, you asked me how did it change the trajectory. I don't know that it did, and I will never know if it did because, you know, when we went to Houston, one flight was what I had in mind, and because you, we hadn't even flown the shuttle yet. You know, the shuttle wasn't finished when when Jackie and our kids uh, and me moved from. We were in Patuxent River, Maryland. I was a test pilot, and we moved to Houston in uh, the summer of, of 1980. So we didn't know we didn't know how long we were going to be there. We didn't know whether we were going we were going to be there for a couple of years or for a lifetime. Um, we just knew, at least we were told, we were never coming back to the to the operating forces of the Marine Corps. That right. too turned out that too turned out to be wrong. Right. So anyway. Um, we lost Challenger. I, I tell people all the time, I thought, I definitely thought, is this what I want to do? Should I be doing this? Uh, and I tell people, I thought about it for about a nanosecond, huh. uh, really quick. And it, it didn't take me very long to realize, you know, uh, I understood the risk when I flew um, fully. Uh, we had come here because it was challenging and to some extent because it was risky. And we still had a lot of work to do in order to hopefully carry out the legacy of, uh, you know, of the 51L crew right. and, and Ron and the rest of them. And so, you know, I made the decision. I, fortunately enough, I'd, I was already assigned to a second flight, which turned out to be the Hubble Space Telescope deploy mission. And so I had a flight to look forward to. And, and so I, you know, we, we just decided, okay, this is where we are and what we're going to do and let's get it, get back into it. And, but I never, ever, um, not on any flight did I ever have any concern that I wasn't going to come back because, you know, you don't think about that. If you do, you may as well not fly. And it was the same thing flying in combat. You you were never, nothing was ever going to happen to you. It always happened to the other guy. Mm-hmm. And, and you knew that. And uh, so that's just sort of, when you talk about a, a certain mentality, I think that's just the mentality that you that you you train with and you operate with and everything. And to a certain extent, while the families know it, uh, they may or may not accept that. And, so, yeah. and, and, and eventually after four flights, you know, working up for my last flight, my family sat me down and, and led by my wife. Uh, they asked me, what was I going to do when I grew up? <laughs> and, uh, and that was a, that was a sort of a piercing question because I hadn't really thought about it. We had been there for 14 years and uh, 13 years at the time. And, and ironically, I got a phone call a couple of days later from the superintendent of the Naval Academy, uh, who was an old friend again, and, uh, and the soup said, uh, hey, uh, it was Admiral Tom Lynch. And uh, he said, hey, I got a question for you. Um, what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> and I said, wow. I said, you know, my, my wife and kids just asked me this question, and I, I didn't have an answer then, and I don't have an answer now. And he asked me if I would if I would be willing to come back to the Naval Academy as the, what was called the Deputy Commandant of Midshipmen, like the Vice Dean of Students at a regular college. And, and I told him, let me talk to my family and then let me talk to the Marine Corps because I didn't, I thought that was a pretty prestigious job and I didn't want to just jump on it and mm-hmm. have the Marine Corps be upset because I took a job and I had been away for 14 years. And so I checked with the family and I checked with the Commandant of the Marine Corps and everybody said, go for it. And so I called him and said, hey, we'd love to do that. What do I need to do? He said, go fly, have fun, and uh, call me when you're done. And we'll talk about how we get you back here, uh, hopefully next summer. And, and so I flew my last flight and did all the debriefs and everything. And 
we graduated our daughter, our baby girl, from high school. And one week later, we left and went to the Naval Academy. Right, right back to the Naval Academy. Um, funny how things come full circle. And, you know, that's yeah. also a testament to the importance of the families and the wives, you know, the support system for you guys. Um, I think sometimes when we watch um, movies or documentaries about astronauts and people who really are trailblazers, it, it, they don't always show fully what the families go to go through and, and, and how important they are, you know, it's because it, it's, it's same thing with, with military, with first responders, you know, the, the family support system is really, really um, plays a big role too. And they're, they're heroes in my opinion as well, because they have to put up with you <laughs> and they yeah. have to, they go through it with you, you know? Um, so just, to, you have to talk a little bit about your experience in space. Um, I like what were, when you first were weightless and you're floating around, what were some of the, the, the sillier things that you did that people wouldn't expect? I mean, we know it's a serious mission and you're doing science experiments and things like that. But like, what was it? What was it like in general? You know, how did you go to the bathroom? <laughs> oh, going to the bathroom is easy uh, because it's exactly like going to the bathroom down here with one minor exception. Gravity's overcome. <laughs> so you float everywhere. And uh, and so you need two things. You You need to find a way to anchor yourself to the toilet, and we use, um, you know, the toilet looks not unlike a toilet in a regular bathroom. It's just a lot smaller hole, so you can make a, a, a seal to let the vacuum work from a little fan that's in the bottom of the system that creates the suction that draws urine into a wastewater tank through a urine collection hose and fecal matter away from your body into a waste, waste management bag. Hmm. Uh, but but then you have two handles on the side that are spring-loaded that rest on your thigh so that you don't float away. Right. Um, <laughs> that so would be an can, unpleasant scene, you know, <laughs> for, for your for your fellow, uh, you know, astronauts there. I don't want to see all that. <laughs> well, for the most part, it, it, it's a lot light going to the bathroom down here with that, that big exception. That yeah. You have a, a fan that creates the suction to replace gravity, and you have the, the uh, spring-loaded uh restraints that keep you flush to the commode while you're using it um when uh, were, were there any really funny things that happened to you while during your uh many days in space over your four missions where you thought to yourself oh my gosh if people on the ground only knew uh funny things happen all the time i think one of the ones that uh intellectually funny was um on my first flight we had uh Two of us were pilots, were test pilots. The commander, Hoot Gibson, and, who was a Navy captain, and I was a Marine Corps, I think, lieutenant colonel at the time. And, uh, and then all of our crew members, except for Congressman Bill Nelson, uh, had PhDs. They were, they were doctors uh, of some scientific ilk. And we used to always kid around because we had a couple of astronomy and astrophysics experiments that we were going to do. And, and we had one astronomer and one astrophysicist, and they used to always talk these technical things. And Hoot and I would, would joke around with them, would always give them a hard time. And we were up on the flight deck one day. He and I were, were strapped into the seats doing some checkouts on the vehicle, and we noticed a little rumbling behind us. And when we finished the checkout and we got ready to float out of our seats, there was a piece of gray tape that had been put across the back of our seats, and when we looked on the outside, they had written in big 
black uh, ink, you know, with a magic marker, intellectual dead zone. <laughs> um, so they were making light of the intellectual prowess of the two, the two pilots right. on the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had, had a pretty good time. That's that's uh, that's that's good. But you, I would think that you would have to have a sense of humor uh, at some point. You know, you have to you have to have some levity, giving the 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 seriousness of what you guys were doing, and you know, um, thousands of miles away from 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 Earth, you know, just kind of hanging out in space. Yeah. Um, so when we went, when we had the pleasure, my mom actually had the opportunity to come with me when I when we went to the space launches, which was really super cool. And so my mom was thrilled about the whole thing. And we had an opportunity to experience a couple of the launch traditions, like the eating of bean, baked beans. Um, oh yeah! Can you talk about where that originated from? And are there any other like uh, pre-launch kind of superstitions or traditions that you guys as astronauts uh- would do? You know, most of the pre-launch superstitions are come from the Russians. We actually, when you go to Russia to launch, they have more superstitions and more customs than, than you can shake a stick at. Huh. Ours are pretty basic. You know, we, um, we, have a, we have a pre-launch dinner the night before, and you're allowed to bring your spouses and, and maybe one or two special guests in to have that, that meal with you. Um, that, that's real special. And... and um, the morning of most, you know, you have your morning breakfast with a big, there's a, a big cake that has the, the seal of, or the, the uh, crew patch on it and uh, the name of the crew and everybody. And so that's a big celebration on your way out to the pad. Um, and and uh, I don't think there are any, the, the beans, I that's think not for you guys. That's, that's for the people on the ground, like right, like the yeah, yeah. the people on the ground and in the launch control center. Right. And uh, I think that actually comes from one of the engineers back during the Apollo era. Started just because the the uh, the launch team had come in really early, hadn't had a chance to get anything to eat because they can't leave console, and so just to feed them, he started doing the 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 white beans and baked uh, ham mm-hmm. and uh, cornbread and that that tradition sort of stuck and yep. the same guy did it until almost the end of the shuttle era and, and then it kind of became it was so institutionalized that they had to go and so many people began to take part because they brought a lot of the guests in to let them take part yep so they they went out and catered it but but it started out just as a, one of the engineers and his wife uh, did some some of the white beans and and ham, and cornbread for the launch control team crew, and uh, and it persisted even to the very end of the shuttle era. Yeah, it was it was pretty neat. It was also about four o'clock in the morning um, when we yep. were there for the first launch. We're like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're gonna eat beans now. <laughs> um, uh, but it was it was really cool to be a part of that. And I gotta tell you that when um, the the rumble, even though we were a good three miles away, the the rumble from when the you know from the boosters when you guys go up was unbelievable it goes through your whole body there's just really no way to describe that i mean i'm not telling you anything you don't know but i mean even just for us so far away on the ground to feel that was uh pretty exhilarating so um really really cool so another thing um that i wanted to ask you about was the russian cooperation i know that um i think you were part of one of the the missions where it was one of the first kind of uh uh, uh, russia american 
cosmonaut, astronaut, cooperative launches, right? Yeah, my last flight was actually what was called, uh, it was called the first flight in phase A of the shuttle Mir program. So we were, the decision had been made that we were going to, um, we were going to begin to test the uh, practical, you know, the could, could we really work with the Russians um, in space? And so we had, we had seen a preliminary test in the Apollo-Soyuz test project when the Soviet Union was still in existence back uh, when Tom Stafford and Lexi Leonov were the two commanders that brought the Soyuz spacecraft and the Apollo spacecraft together on orbit in 1975. Um, so this was sort of an expansion on that. And we, were gonna, we brought two Russian cosmonauts and their families along with uh, members of their training teams and medical people and everybody. It's sort of a, a mini group from Moscow, from Star City, to uh, let them live and work with us for two years in training to find out whether that was feasible or not. And it worked incredibly well. I was the commander of that mission. Uh, Sergei Krikalov and Vladimir Titov were our two Russian cosmonauts. We ended up flying with Sergei, who both of them were incredible gentlemen and Sergey was an absolute professional. I learned more from him, uh, you know, in the two years that we trained and flew together than I learned from anybody else in the space program. The guy was a natural in space. Uh, he had, at the time, he had lived in space longer than any other human being. Um, young engineer, he was not a military person, so he was a little bit different than the standard cosmonaut. Mm -hmm. uh, his wife was a flight controller over in Moscow, and they had a four-year-old child who is now a 20 or 30 some odd year old beautiful young lady in business in Moscow but we all of us still maintain close contact Sergey is today the head of the the uh, human spaceflight program for Roscosmos for the Russian space agency and and our, our friendship has lasted through all the discord and all the inability of our nations to get together diplomatically and and politically and the space programs continue to work um, as real partners and real friends I would think that that's a, a brotherhood that certainly would um, would would surpass those kinds of of geopolitical differences and things like that, just because it's uh, only an elite group of people get to do what you guys did. So I'm glad to hear that you, you were able to kind of overcome those things and work together for the kind of, you know, the greater humanity, you know, yeah. if that's still possible. And it's good to know that that's still possible. Um, what was your exact role? Uh, um, on the, the space shuttle missions. You know, you see, you know, a lot of us only know from movies and what we see, you know, everyone seems to have specialty areas. What was yours? Yeah. My first two flights, I was what was called a pilot. And the pilot on a commercial vehicle or a military vehicle is the co-pilot. Uh, so my job was to, I had responsibility for most of the, the systems on board the shuttle, um, electrical, propulsion, hydraulic, you name it. Um, and so my job was to assist the commander in the care and feeding of the rest of the crew and taking care of the vehicle and getting it into space and back home. Uh, my last two missions, I was the commander. So my job was uh, to work with the training team and the flight controllers to make sure that we, we were well trained and ready to go fly and then that we conducted the flight um, according to the, to the flight plan and, and kept made, my job was to, to care for the safety of the crew and the, and the safety of the vehicle during the flight. 
Right. Great. That's that's uh, a pretty important job. You so you weren't you weren't the nerdy scientist doing the the you know plant experiments and things. Was, uh, <laughs> you were driving no, it. I was, yeah. <laughs> you were the captain I, of that we ship. Were a, if it were a commercial airplane, I would be the, the captain. Right. Right. Up in the cockpit. So you said that you can remember watching like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and those guys and they're you know landing on the moon and and watching that. Um, how come we stopped doing moon landings and and also, what, how did you feel about ending the shuttle program? Because that happened under your tenure as the NASA administrator, yeah. and you were the first African-American NASA administrator appointed by President Obama in 2009. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about that? Because I was in Congress. I worked for Congressman Rohrabacher. So, yeah, no, I know. I remember. Do you remember um, me? I do. And yeah. uh, that's why I was excited about talking to you. Great. And, uh, you know, um, you were always so nice to me, by the way, every time we, I would see you at receptions and things, you were just always the nicest person. I just thought you were just so know, down to I, earth. So I was thrilled when you were, had the time to agree. So, but go ahead. I would have to say my mom, my mom and dad hopefully raised me well. So, I, without um, question. Without question. You know, two big, two big differences in the terminations of the program. So, um, unfortunately, and, and it is an issue we face today, believe it or not. The Apollo era came, came to an end because the driver had been satisfied. It was a geopolitical imperative that we beat the Soviets to the moon, that we not let them be the first to get to the moon and get that strategic high ground. And so once, once we knew we were going to be the first to the moon, and there was no question about it because the, the Soviets had quit. They had had a couple of failed launch attempts, and they, they gave up on, on, on even even hoping to get anybody to the moon before we could. And we knew that. So all we had to do was get there. And, and, and our goal would have been satisfied. So actually, Congress and the administration started to defund NASA um, before we even, before the Apollo 11 crew got back from the moon. And so the rest of the Apollo era was spent actually leading to the shutdown of the program. We canceled the last two scheduled flights, Apollo's, uh, I think it must have been 18 and 19, I think. Uh, Apollo's, anyway, we, we canceled the last two scheduled flights and, and, and the budget went back to pretty sparse budget compared to what it had been at the height of the Apollo era. Um, shuttle did not have that kind of imperative. It was, um, you know, it was something that, that was aspirational and um but we realized that if we were really going to explore if we were serious about going back to the moon and then on the mars we needed to get nasa out of standard everyday operating in low earth orbit and that meant getting us out of the shuttle so i while i um agreed and, it was, and it was costly right it cost a lot of money it was, it was very, like a billion dollars a flight right two billion dollars whether we flew or not right here that was, that was just for the infrastructure and the care and feeding of the people and the vehicle. So, so it was very expensive. It never turned out to be, um, you know, although it was a reusable spacecraft, it never, we never used it fully that way. And it always turned out we could never get ourselves to the point where we would fly multiple flights without taking things apart. And so every time we did that, it added to the cost, and we were never able to get the cost down. Um, so cost was one wanting to be able to explore and go beyond low earth orbit was two and um and while it was painful emotionally and otherwise to 
to um, oversee the the, re, the retirement of the shuttle, it was definitely the right thing to do. There were some things we should have done better. We should have made certain that commercial entities were postured to replace the shuttle sooner than they did, and we weren't able, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the Congress was not going to give President Obama a win on anything. Uh, you were there, so you knew yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Saw it every day. And so we could not convince Congress to fund commercial crew until about four years after President Obama had requested funding for it. So, so we're ending up where we are now is we're about four years behind on actually flying the first commercial crew vehicle. We should have, we should have been flying in 2012, 2013, no later than 2015, mm-hmm. and we are in 2019. Uh, just about ready to fly the first flights, and that's because Congress delayed almost four years in funding, fully funding the program. You know, that was back at a time when Republicans actually cared about budgets and deficits. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is out the window exactly. now. Um, oh, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was I I it was a sad day. I think it was just nostalgic for a lot of Americans to see an end to something like that because there was just so much oh, pride in the program. Yeah, it was it was it was painful. I cried like a baby down on the runway, uh, you know, standing under Atlantis after the landing. I just I couldn't believe it. But, right. You know, we I can we imagine don't really what we had accomplished over the 135 flight program. Uh, and we felt really, really, really good about the work that the that the crews had done at the Cape and Houston and everywhere, because everybody will tell you it was the cleanest vehicle we had on 135 flights. It, it came back, and it looked like it had not launched yet. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's how good the vehicle was. Well, um, you know, I, it, it's still, it's still, I'm still in awe of what, of what not only just as a country, what we were able to achieve, but um, being able to, to, to spend time and, and talk with someone like you that's actually been there and done it and been such a part of American history as you have been. And uh, you were uh, nominated and, and inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 2006, which is pretty cool. Um, did you actually also get a chance to ever work with Katherine Johnson? Of for those who don't know, from Hidden Figures, you know, I, the, you know the amazing yeah. black women who were part of the of the original program, sending men to the moon. Um, did you ever get a chance to work with her? I, I did not. And that's an interesting story. I had never heard of Katherine Johnson uh, prior to being invited to be the commencement speaker at West Virginia state. How about that? And, uh, and so West Virginia state was Katherine Johnson's alma mater. And when she went there, it used to be called the Institute. I, I can't remember what his name really was. It was like the West Virginia Institute for Negroes or something, mm. but because it was in Institute West Virginia. Um, and, uh, what Catherine, year was that? What year was that? Oh, geez. Um, it was, I don't, you know, I need to go back and look, but it would have been in the, in the early fifties because. Oh, okay. No, I mean, when you went to speak there, when you went to speak there. I want to say that was like 20, let me see. She was presented the presidential medal of freedom in 2015, I think. And I spoke at West Virginia state the year prior. And in my remarks, as I was reading through the draft, you know, we had this long section on this woman called Katherine Johnson, and I, <laughs> I called my speechwriter. I said, who the heck is Katherine Johnson? Oh, my gosh. And so he, you know, he came up, and he explained to me who Katherine Johnson was. He had, 
he had found her in doing his research on West Virginia State among the notable alums. And uh, so I told her story to the graduating class of, I think it was 2014, 2015, uh, for the purpose of helping them understand why they should be proud of the school from which they were graduating and why they could do anything they wanted to and they would have an opportunity to make a difference in the world. And little did I know that a year later I would be sitting in the, you know, in the White House, in the audience when President Obama presented Katherine Johnson with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And that was the first time I met her. Wow. Well, I met her at, at the ceremony. Um, she was a, it still is, an, an unbelievably beautiful woman inside and out, really sharp even today. Um, you know, she's 100 and I think she just turned 100 in August. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, she is a true, true uh, heroine to all of us. But, but that was when I learned about her was a year before she, she won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I, she had retired prior to my coming. Uh, well, she actually, I did not know it, she actually still worked at Langley when I came into the astronaut office because she supported the first few space shuttle launches before she retired. <laughs> and, but I'll go back, um, you know, go back to our, the beginning of our conversation. You know, we need to, the one thing that I try to do to, to young people as I travel around, young and old, as I travel around is talk about how hopeful I am for our future, but how cautious I am about ever taking anything for granted. And I remind them about the fact that when we landed on the moon, the night that we landed on the moon, uh, we had just come through some of the darkest days in the history of this country, second only to the Civil War. You know, we had, had mm-hmm. we were killing each other in the streets, not only about civil rights, but about the war in Vietnam. Uh, blacks were against whites, whites were against whites. There was, everybody had hatred for everybody and everything, and yet we managed to put a man on the moon. Um, and I believe that any nation that could do that uh, can easily overcome the difficulties we're having today to get back to the moon and on to Mars and do other great things. And, um, but we have to put our minds to it, just as we did back then. Is that where you see the future of the space program? Is it expo- I I see, exploring um, Mars, I see the outer, you know, the, yeah. will, will we put a man on Mars in, in my lifetime? A person. We'll put a person yes. on yes. Mars in your lifetime. And hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, you know, there'll be, well, there will be more than just one. And hopefully that crew will be a diverse crew um, internationally as well as, uh, um, you know, gender wise. But I actually think the key is the, continued growth of our commercial space community. Uh, That's absolutely essential. We've got to have commercial entities that will take over uh, operating in low Earth orbit, doing research and development and doing space science and the like so that NASA and and our partner nations can move on and get back to the moon and then on to Mars. You can't do everything. And so we've got to seed. It's going to be critical for us to seed low Earth orbit to the commercial entities. 
in um in our last few few minutes that I have with you, and I thank you again for being so generous with with your time. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> um, I wish we had all day because I would talk to you all day. I have so many questions about so many things. Because when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be an astronaut or an astronomer. I wanted to go to space camp, but we couldn't afford it, so I never got a chance to go. But my mom um would take me to Hayden Planetarium in New York all the time because we lived um 50, twenty minutes from New York. City. So she would always take me to museums and to the planetarium. And so I've always had an interest in in space and and astronomy and things like that and I guess God for me had a different plan because he he knew I had too much personality and I had too big of a mouth to be a quiet scientist doing numbers and things calculating projections to other galaxies so I had it was relegated to being a a hobby for me um and I can remember you know my first telescope and seeing Halley's Comet and you know all those things so it's it's always been something I've been fascinated with um but it would be remiss of me I'm sorry. Don't don't give up because we need somebody like you to take the trip and tell the story. Yeah. Uh, my 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 big plea to my NASA employees during my eight years there, seven and a half, was we have got to become better storytellers. We the only thing missing from the space program today is is a, a cadre of storytellers, people who have had the opportunity to view Earth from that vantage point and can effectively tell the story. Some of the, some of the astronauts are really good. Yes. Most of us, for the, for the most part, the rest of us really suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but we need people who are trained in telling stories like you and painting word pictures to help people understand the incredible grandeur of this planet on which we live, uh, the fragility of humanity within the ecosystem. You know, Earth's going to be here. Earth isn't going anywhere. People talk about the fragility of Earth and our atmosphere. We can destroy the atmosphere for us. Earth is still going to be here. What we got to do is we've got to we've got to survive, and that means cleaning up the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need storytellers to help us understand that. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I try to do my part, which is partially why I like to have guests like you on. And, and speaking of other really good um, advocates for for space flight and the NASA program and, and STEM program, um, Leland Melvin is going to be on. Uh, he's going to be a guest on Honestly Speaking as well, and I know that he's been oh, great. Yes, yeah, he is awesome. Yes, so yeah. uh, I look forward to having having him on as well. Speaking of people who are good representatives and good storytellers, I think he's one of them, and he's also black. And there's only been sixteen, right? Sixteen black astronauts. Oh, I don't keep count. I should. Yeah, yeah I think that's but it. You, but you that's know it. Than I do. <laughs> yep. That's not. I, that's I not enough. Few. No, not nearly enough. That's not nearly enough. Um, so yeah, so I will I will continue to do my part because I think it is really important. I think it's also important for little young black boys and girls and and minority kids to see that they can achieve it. Uh, and and uh, I applaud uh, efforts that I know that you put forth when you were a NASA administrator. I know like people like Leland and others that really um, explain that that STEM programs are for you also. You know. Just because you're a young black boy coming from the inner city of Chicago doesn't mean that you cannot be uh, Charles Bolden one day. And, and I think that that's wonderful. Um, before I let you go, I have to ask. This is my, my, my final line of questioning. Two things. The best and worst advice that you ever got and your favorite space movie and most realistic space movie. 
Oh, my favorite and most realistic are both The Martian. Um, it is. You know, the, the authors and the producer and director of The Martian, the author of the book and the, the movie producer and director worked diligently with NASA, a lot with the folks out at JPL, because they wanted the movie and the book to be as scientifically accurate as possible. And so most of what you saw in the movie is either real or is on the way. We're working on it. That's so fascinating. Absolutely fascinating scientific uh, science fiction story. So that I can answer that one real easy. Good. The worst advice I forgot was from my third grade teacher, Mrs. Walker, <laughs> who told me to quit being so naive that I was going to be hurt one of these days because I believed too much in people and trusted people too much. Um, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anything could have been worse advice. Um, best advice, um, geez. Uh, I, I, I'll attribute it to both my mom and dad together, although to be um well, I'm going to give you two pieces. Well, my favorite saying in terms of advice came from my dad when he was my high school football coach. And he said, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Mm -hmm. um, that's great that, advice. That, that's my favorite inspirational saying. And then, um, you know, best advice I got from them together was uh, don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do. You know, you set, you set your own course in life and, uh, and go for it. Well, I think that is fantastic advice, and you certainly lived up to that and continue to. And um, I, I can't thank you enough, General Charles Bolden. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can talk again. You know, I don't live far away from you. I'm down the road here in Virginia. Ah, uh, where? I, I can't say where on air, Michael. I'll tell you off air, but I live down the road in Fairfax County. <laughs> oh, shoot. Then you're, I'm probably, I probably drive by your place because I'm, we live in Mount Vernon, so we're right yeah. here on Doe Creek. Yeah, oh yeah, it's beautiful at, over there. I can look at Fort Belvoir if I walk over into my neighbor's backyard. You are not that far away from me, so yeah. we'll have to we'll, well have to do it again. It is so good to talk to you, Tara, and I look forward to, to working you again, working with you again. Give Leland my very best. He is awesome. I I certainly will. I'm gonna have to. Do you have any good stories about him? I can rib him about. Uh, well, you know. Ask him about how he, the day he decided he was going to leave the NFL, his story is not as good as mine. He and I agree that, that my story is, is, I take a lot of literary license because I say he was, he was injured. He had, a, he had a bad hamstring. Right, I heard. And I said he was laying in the end zone one day, you know, as a rookie, or he may not have been a rookie that year, and he finally said, you know, I've had enough of this. And he, he let, walked away from the NFL, went back and got a, a graduate degree and worked at Langley and the rest is history. He says, well, it didn't exactly happen that way, but I said, but I like my story better than whatever really happened. <laughs> I'll so be sure ask to him, ask him. How did, it, how did it really happen? Tell right. me the process. Right. I will, I will be sure to ask him that. That's great. And, and don't give your story short shrift. It's pretty remarkable too. Yeah, tell him, unless he's got a better story than mine, I like mine. I'm right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, General Bolden, thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, Tara. Thank you. Thanks so very much. Bye-bye. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard right, Mennonites. 
99% of them are kind, God-fearing people, but there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Starting on January 23rd on Wednesdays, 10-9 Central, WGN America premiered the new TV series, Pure, based on true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head, and the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some pretty bad things, all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. So get hooked on Pure. Check it out on Wednesdays at 10, 9 Central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV Channel 307, also available on Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tweet me at Tara Setmayer, that's on Twitter, or at honestly underscore Tara, also on Twitter, uh, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. And I'll be sure to answer your questions, comments about what you like, dislike, guests you want to see, anything about the podcast. I am pretty responsive. So be sure to uh, send me a message and um, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.